0: as we do every week. And indeed we're bringing to a conclusion um, our series in 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in chapter five of 1 John. Uh, if you don't, that's okay. The passage is on the screen uh, behind me. I'm gonna have a little go at doing my own slides this morning, so we'll see, uh, see how that takes us. I'm not famed for my multitasking abilities, if you ask my wife. So we'll see how this goes. Um, we are in, as I say, the final leg of what I think has been a formative series for us as a church. I feel like God has bound us together in a, in a new way as we've listened to John or God through John uh, binding us together in this wonderful letter and uh, he finishes this like this in verse 6 of chapter 5 this is he who this is he who came by water and blood Jesus Christ not by the water only but by the water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth for there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. That's a bit confusing. Don't worry. We'll come back into that a little bit later. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Again, I will get into that as well. We know This is the word of God. Let me just tell you a very quick little story to help launch us into what I think God wants to say. A number of years ago, I had the interesting privilege of being the hare in a school cross-country race. So I was like a student, gap student teacher in a school. They were hosting a cross-country race with some 400 kids. And the hare's job was to stay ahead of the, the, uh, all, the, all the runners and to kind of lead them around and make sure they didn't um, go the wrong way, which I thought was a fairly simple task, they were like no more than 12 and 13, I was 19 in those days, had some degree of uh, speed to equip me, and so I was pretty comfortable for the first mile or so, just staying ahead of the pack, as it were, and all was well, until it started to rain. And as the rain came, what was already a fairly soft uh, cross-country circuit became a pretty muddy and slippy and slidy cross-country circuit, as this kind of indicates. And uh, some frankly, slightly sadistic teacher, had arranged the kind of climax of the race to be a very steep hill. And so my job was to make sure I got to the top of that hill and then the home straight was in in play and I could just sort of dutifully move out the way. Except, by the time I got to this hill, A, the rain was falling so much, B, I hadn't estimated how, how quick some of these 12, 13-year-olds were, and I was slipping and sliding, and that, if you've ever run in mud before, you know it is exhausting. The energy just is just sapped from your legs you're trying to hold your grip, and keep on running on a muddy, muddy surface. And I can still remember the ignominy of trying to stay ahead of this like, panting pack of hounds slash 12-year-olds behind me, and eventually losing my, losing my uh, footing and falling flat on my face on the muddy hill and seeing these 12, 12-year-olds smirking go past me. And part of the reason why I kind of still remember that, other than the embarrassment, um, is the experience of trying to stand and run on ground that is not secure. It is not much fun trying to stand or run on ground that is not secure. And in the closing verses of this wonderful letter that um, this wonderful old man, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, has written to these churches, he really wants to help the Christians, the churches that he's writing to. He wants them to know the ground upon which you stand to run the race marked out for you is secure. It's like his final words, he wants to tell them, he keeps saying, we know, we know, we know. He wants them to know that the foundation of the Christian faith is secure. It doesn't give way, it's not one that you slip and slide on. You can run your race confident and secure and calm. I don't know about you, but people who are secure are good people to be around. And I don't know about you as well, but I'm not the only Christian who I think at times doesn't live as secure as I wish. I don't always live as calmly and as confidently and as securely and as sure-footedly as a Christian is supposed to. So John's going to help us this morning with some pretty simple things that will be familiar to many of you to give us a a sense of sure-footedness for whatever the race looks like for you. And it's as though he wants to give us a a platform, a stone-solid surface. And it's as though he's going to piece together eight different stones and just show us just how secure and solid the Christian faith is to base your life upon. And if you're a Christian this morning, none of these will be new. And all of these could take a whole message and a whole series of messages themselves. So I'm going to go at some pace just to touch on these different stones and I hope cement together the security for the race in which we run. And if you're not yet Christian or you're not sure, it's going to be helpful for you to see what is the foundation of the Christian faith and is it a worldview upon which I can build my life? Because we're all building our life upon some kind of worldview. The question is, is it secure? Does it allow you to live secure? And John says, absolutely it does. So, stone one as I piece them together. He basically wants to say, Jesus is the foundation. The Bible says he's the cornerstone of our faith, and he wants to give us eight things, and I'm gonna go at a serious pace to piece those together. The first one is the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus. In verse six he says, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the witness about him. That's one of the Holy Spirit's jobs, is he leads us into the truth of who Jesus is, he bears testimony, he witnesses to Jesus, and he even enables us to believe in that truth about Jesus. And that's your first stone this morning, if you're a Christian, to stand secure on, because the the truth of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just show us what's true about Jesus, he actually graciously does a work within us to help us believe what's true about Jesus, which is mysterious to an extent but it allows us to stand secure. Why? Because if actually you becoming a Christian was ultimately down to you to find enough faith, then it's kind of down to you. But if your salvation was not a case of you working up enough faith to get to God, but him coming down to you to enable you to believe, then ultimately it's down to him. So it leaves no room for pride, because it wasn't down to us, and leaves no room for fear, because it's not up to us to maintain it. So we can stand secure and join in with the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. He started it, he began it, he initiated it, he actually, although you're responsible for the decision that you made and accountable for it, he undergirded that decision with his own gracious ability to draw you into faith and he will bring through what he started. So stone one, you can stand secure on the Holy Spirit. Stone two: You can stand secure on the humanity of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. I'm referring to these rather mysterious verses in verse six verse six to eight, particularly verse six. "This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood." Now commentators have great fun trying to understand exactly what John meant, and it may be that he was referring to the water and the blood kind of combination at birth, and the water and the blood at Jesus' death on the cross. More likely, I think, is that he's referring to the water at Jesus' baptism and, and the blood at his death, talking about these, the moments at which the Holy Spirit testified at Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death. Either way. The consensus seems to be that what John wants to put before us in these verses is the humanity of Jesus. This is a God who was born as a human, who lived as a human, who was baptised as a human, who died as a human, who was raised as a human. If ever there was a way of bringing about the, the, the beauty and the dignity of physical motherhood, or holding it up, surely it's the incarnation the eternal God being willing to dwell in a womb for nine months and to be born in the the mess and the pain and the blood and the glory of childbirth. The incarnation is, in some ways, the ultimate example of the dignity of physical motherhood. And, And Jesus, of course, grew to be a boy, and he learnt, we're told, wisdom, and he learnt what it was to be a young man, and he laughed, and he ate, and he drank, and he made friends, and he worked with his hands. And of course he suffered, and he wept, and he got lonely, and he got tired, and he was tempted. He experienced the full gamut of the human condition. A few years ago, um, one of Caroline's friends, before we were married, pitched up at the house that she was living in, in, in a real state of uh, distress. And um, she, it became clear that her marriage had hit a bit of a significant bump in the road, and she was incredibly distressed and upset and hurt, uh, partly at what her husband had done. And, and I was able to come round, and we were able to pray with her. She wasn't a Christian, she's not a Christian, and we were able to pray with her. And one of the things that I think particularly struck her was, as we were praying, was our conviction that Jesus is God, divine, but also human, and that he knows what it is to suffer. And specifically, we were asking Jesus, the one who knows what it is to be let down by those closest to him, would you minister comfort and compassion? And that seemed to be something quite kind of profound for her, that our conviction was that our God is also human, and he knows what it is to be let down by those uh, closest to him. And it was great, because we were able to chat with her husband afterwards, or I was, and Just really helpful, interesting, gritty, messy conversations just to bring something of the comfort of God into their marriage. And they're not Christians yet, but their marriage is doing well, actually fostering children as part of a healthy marriage, and we're praying that they will come to faith, but they have have at least experienced something of the comfort of the humanity of Jesus third stone is the divinity of Jesus, which I've just touched upon, which is kind of the basis of the Christian faith, and is not new to any of us who are Christians, but John finishes his letter pretty much with this, in verse 20, we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. John wants us to know this is not just Jesus is not just the one who was born and baptized and killed and raised. This is God. The other day I told you the other day I bumped into an old friend of mine. He's a Muslim guy. I used to live with him, and I bumped into him, uh, and we were just chatting. And within a few minutes, he said to me, "Do you still believe in God?" I said, "Yeah, I believe that Jesus was God." Because that was always our point of discussion over the the reality of Jesus. Was he simply human or was he actually, was it God taking upon himself? Because if Jesus is just human, what you have at the cross is is God the Father sending a, a, a human being to bear the full weight of all of humanity's sin and the punishment for it. If Jesus is God, what you have at the cross is is God not just uh, delivering the just punishment for human sin, but God bearing it himself. You don't have just God sending, you have God joyfully submitting. At the resurrection, you don't just have God raising, you have God being raised. And so John finishes his letter by reminding us of the divinity of Jesus. The, The floor has a gaping hole in it, and my stone floor has a gaping hole in it if Jesus is not God. Fourth stone. Is prayer through Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus? Prayer through Jesus. Never preached an eight-point sermon before. Here we go. Prayer through Jesus, verse fourteen, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. John's putting this big foundation flagstone of prayer. And he's saying to us, prayer is a gift and it's a weapon. It's a gift because it's the means by which we abide with the Father. And it's a weapon because it's the means by which we we cause the Father to stretch out his hand and act. And it has to be a gift for the weapon to be used. What do I mean by that? If you, if you enjoy the gift of prayer and you abide in the presence of the Father and you enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the wonder of the Son, you abide within God, you start to learn and know what it, who God is and what he's like. And so it's not a case from a second guess His will. Like can I find the right prayer formula to sort of match up with God's will and then magically rub the lamp and it will cause? No, God, praying according to the will of God comes from abiding in God's you deploy the weapon of prayer when you enjoy the gift of prayer. Because not a case trying a second guess God's will, you spend time in the presence of the Father, you learn to love what he loves, and indeed hate what he hates. Because hatred isn't the opposite of love, apathy is. Because God's a God of love, he does oppose evil and injustice. And God has revealed his will to us in his word, in the Bible. You can confidently abide in the presence of God, in the word of God, and begin to pray the will of God, because much of it is there. So you can confidently pray according to the will of God if you're abiding in the word of God. So make it practical, we're in, a, we're in 40 days of prayer. Thank you so much to those of you who've committed to praying each day for the church for the 40 days of Lent. Or well, the 46 days, I discovered it is. I didn't know that. They, didn't, they don't count Sundays. It's actually 46 days. So it ruined my 40 to for 40. But it hasn't ruined it because we're praying each day to see God do some great things. And according to our vision, if we're praying, point one, that people would know God more and more, by know God we mean enjoy him, worship him, make much of him, trust him, glorify him, you can be confident that God wills that kind of thing. And thank you for praying it. If we're praying that we would be a church family in which each one of us gets to be known and loved, bound to each other in some kind of remarkable agape love, released to be all that we can be, encouraging, exhorting, rebuking one another. If you're praying that sort of thing, you can be confident that's the will of God. That's what he wants for his local church. If you're praying for us to make God known, point three, to extend the gospel, to see people become Christians, cross the line of faith, have lives transformed, then you can be confident that's the will of God. That's what he wants. And you can go deeper into that for us as a church when it comes to things like the pursuit of a building. As best we know, a number of years ago, God spoke to this church and said, start raising money through generous, sacrificial giving. Build up a war chest, so that one day you can purchase your own building and have a place more firmly planted into the borough and reach the surrounding area. That's what God said, as best we know, and now we're praying into it. And surprise, surprise, things are starting to move. Buildings are starting to come up. People are starting to get a sense of vision and daring to dream again. So we can pray that confidently because it's the will of God as best we know. When it comes to John and Sophie and the Istanbul church plant, we know God said to them, go, learn language for two years, commit to five years, plant a church by my spirit, see Muslim Turkish people cross the line of faith and declare Jesus to be God. They've done that. So as they return home, we can be praying for them. God, we know what they've done. We know they've followed the will of God. Now bring them home and heal them and restore them and minister to them and plant them back into this church. You can confidently pray that, nothing it's the will of God. Do you understand? And for the church, they're going to leave behind. We know God believes in planting churches, drawing people from every tribe and nation and tongue into him. So as this precious church has begun to get off the ground and seen 20, 30 believers come to faith, we can pray for new leaders, not thinking, God, maybe? No, it's the will of God to cherish a local church. He not. He's not going to leave fledgling believers in the middle of Turkey to fend for themselves. He's going to bring the right people in. But he's going to do that in his sovereign majesty and sovereign decision-making according to your prayers. Which is not in the sense that it's dependent upon you, but you get to play a part in it. As we're praying for the right leaders to come in and bring this church on, we can be praying confidently that it is the will of God. So please do come on Tuesday evening for our encounter evening. Uh, And let's spend time together, yes, worshipping and absolutely praying and crying out to God to do the things that he said. Some of you kind of, for whatever reason, exclude yourself from these evenings. I don't know why. They're just great evenings to enjoy the presence of God and to press into him in prayer because, for whatever reason, because he's God, he has ordained prayer as the means by which he will do what is in his will. He's given it to us as a gift and a weapon for us to use to cause him the eternal God, to do the things that he is passionate about. So, I'll see you there on Tuesday. Number five, the protection of Jesus. Verse 18. I hope you can feel the stone, the, the ground beneath your feet solidifying if it isn't already. The Christian faith is one in which you can stand secure and confident in, not least because of the protection of Jesus. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, as John has already said in his letter, he understands that it's a, it's a both and. It's often both and in the Christian life, in my experience. In the sense that there is a reality that the evil one, the enemy, the devil, has been defeated. That's why Jesus came, John said in chapter 1. The victory's been won, done, results secure, and because it's both and, and there are battles on the way towards seeing that victory realised. It's both ands. If you remember the, the World War II and the uh, Stalingrad description or analogy a few weeks ago, the victory is secure, there are battles to be fought on the way there, and the enemy will do, and he is desperate to do whatever he can, in his death throes, as it were, to derail Christians and to derail churches. Why can you stand confident and secure facing those battles? Because John says, the evil one does not touch you. Doesn't mean that either circumstances or that his particular schemes are not going to hurt and buffet and confuse, and they do. And some of you know exactly what that is in these moments. But John says, this old man who, believe you me, has experienced more buffeting than most of us have, and he knows what it is to say, I, 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 the devil is, is raging, his schemes, he's prowling around, he hates churches, hates Christians. But I know the evil one ultimately does not touch you if you're in Christ. Why does he know that? Because he overheard Jesus saying it in, in his gospel in John 10:28. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand." That's a reason to stand secure. Whatever life throws, Jesus, who does not lie, has made a promise that he will not let you go. Number six, the life of Jesus. Verse 12, God gave us eternal life. 13, you have eternal life. Verse 20, he is eternal life. Another flagstone to stand secure and confident on is the eternal life that Jesus promises. Again, these are familiar words. Many of us would have prayed these, sung these, read these, preached these, written these many, many times. But John is not stupid. He knows that Christians need reminding. That's why he's building his stone surface under which, on which you stand. He knows that Jesus' resurrection tells us. The life has overcome death. Death is not the end, the yearning that seems to be in so many human people, regardless of worldviews, that surely death can't be the end. It seems so foreign and unfair and unjust. Jesus' resurrection tells us that life has overcome death. A groaning, creaking creation, and gosh, it is groaning and creaking, is being and will one day be restored. When I was a kid and I was being a Christian family, I remember, genu- I remember praying genuinely, God, I do not want to go to heaven. When I die, please, can that be it? Because as far as I was concerned, the heaven thing was the clouds and the harps and the singing, and I hate all three of those. Well, I did then. I like the singing now at all ends that it to be, was just a kind of an ethereal, mysterious, ghostly, incredibly tedious experience. Like when you're 12, a week is a long time. Eternity, with the clouds and the harps and the singing, was terrifying. I remember praying, God, none, don't want it. But the resurrection is, is begun, the restoration, the resurrection of this earth. It's begun heaven coming to earth, overlapping it, renewing it, and one day that will be finalized. And those who are in Christ will live forever with the deepest heart's desires being met every single day forever in Christ. All that is good and right and beautiful and creative and wonderful will be in its absolute fullness. It'll never be a boring moment with Jesus being worshipped forever and ever and ever All that is right, and pure, and good, and just, and fun, and creative, and beautiful, and tasty, is being renewed and restored. And we have it. It's not just a thing we look towards. We're not Christians in this church who kind of bunker down and wait for Jesus to return, wait for eternal life. No, Jesus of the kingdom of heaven is here. It's near, it's like this. Pray that it comes. So we wanna taste what we will one day be now? the creativity and the beauty and the wonder and the perfection and the justice and the mercy of the new creation. We're called to pray that into being. That's what we do on Tuesday evening. We might just gather to go through some prayers and some religious stuff. We're called to, we, we pray to move the hand of God to give us an increasing down payment on the inheritance that is ours in Jesus. That's what we pray. That's what we expect to see God do because of the promise of life, of heaven coming to and renewing earth. Seventh stone of eight, we're almost there, is the forgiveness of Jesus. These are interesting verses. Then a few clocks them, I saw a few speech bubbles above a few heads when we read this. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To so those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Discuss. In other words, John is saying, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven and ultimately lead to life. Nothing. It's part of the scandal of the cross, the scandal of the gospel. There is nothing that has not been covered and absorbed and punished and dealt with in Jesus. That's why the divinity of Jesus is so important. Because God didn't just punish it, God received it, absorbed it, fully dealt with it. So if you're not yet a Christian, for many people, my friends, their objection to Christian faith is, is not this. There's a be I don't really need forgiving, thanks very much. Like, but, but, so that might be you, that, that's the case, let's talk. But if you're here thinking, I, I would love to receive the love and the grace of God to know eternal life, to have a promise that is secure and certain, to stand on a worldview that wouldn't fail, but I've done some stuff. Or not done. What I should have done. The promise here is there is nothing Beyond the forgiveness of God. There is nothing that cannot ultimately lead to life in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, there's the same promise. And in fact, John is particularly writing to his brothers and sisters. He wants them to know don't be one of those Christians who sits on sin because of shame for ages and ages and ages, letting it do its horrible work. Enjoy the pain, but the, the fruit of confession and repentance in the family of God, because he says it leads to life. There's so much fruit to come from in the family of God where we're hopefully building a fit community in which we're known and loved, grabbing a trusted brother and sister, confessing things, repenting things together, receiving forgiveness, tapping into the f- complete totality and fullness of the cross, being sanctified more into the image of Jesus and walking free and knowing life and not being bound up in the stuff that entangles us. And John is an old, old man. He's kind of almost pleading with this church. Don't live in shame. Because that doesn't lead to any life. So don't walk out of here if there are things that need to be entrusted. Conversation, confessed and repented of. There might be big consequences. But I don't know. I know some Christians who've confessed some big things. And I wasn't going to say. I know some Christians who've confessed some big things. And I don't know any of them who are not now experiencing genuine life. Maybe pain along the way, but life always comes when things are confessed, they're repented they of, and the grace that God comes in, and marriages and relationships and all kinds of things get brought into freedom. I do know people who have hidden things for a long time and it has derailed them. Because John loves us, so he brings a warning, because he's a loving dad. And he's also warning Christians who pretend to be Christians. Because if you want to know what the sin is that ultimately will only lead to death, it's the sin of rejecting Jesus. And so he holds that in front of any people who aren't Christians who who would read that and say, okay, I I can see that nothing is beyond the grace of Jesus, but if I reject the grace of Jesus, then I'll know eternal death, not eternal life. But he writes to brothers and sisters, and he mentioned this in chapter 1 and 2, I think, because he's really interested in authentic Christianity, the real deal stuff. And what he's hinting at here and has said in the rest of the letter is there is a certain type of professing believer who can say the stuff and attend the things, but actually, and hear this crucial word, over the long term, over a long period of time, if there is really no affection for the things of God, no love for the people of God, no desire to confess and repent of things and get free of things, if that's the case, over the long period of time, John would say, it might not be you're a Christian at all. And he says that because he loves people and I'm saying that because I love people, I love you. There is a sin that will not be forgiven ultimately, and it's the sin of rejecting Jesus. And there are people around the world who can say the stuff and attend the things, but deep down there hasn't actually been a a regeneration, there hasn't actually been a new birth that comes through accepting Jesus. Now, hear me, because as my hero Tim Keller always says, when you preach you should be disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. I do not want to be disturbing the disturbed. (laughs) Even if you are even thinking, oh gosh, that is already an indication of (laughs) that you're in. If there's any inkling in your heart of affections for God, of desire for the people of God, just a fraction of, of just pondering on the goodness of God, of loving anybody in their family, if any of that is at work, that is the Holy Spirit at work in you as a believer united to Christ. So hear me, but don't not hear me as well. It might be that coming to faith for you for this morning is actually coming to faith for the first time, for the first genuine time. And that would be great. And that would lead to life. Final stone is our union with Christ. Exactly. Good, Amy. Emphasizing it, taking a picture. I'm all for that. Our union with Christ. He, John hints at it in verses 10 to 12, and he bangs it outright in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. I had a great moment this week and a terrifying moment. I was like, the unity of Jesus, our union with Christ, it is amazing. It is the pinnacle of the gospel. We're going to probably do a teaching series on it in the autumn term and I don't understand it. was <laughs> like, ooh, So I figure the best way to understand it is to teach you about it. So we'll have to learn together in the autumn term. And we're going to try and unpack the wonder and the mystery and the practical life that comes from this glorious truth, which Paul puts like this in Galatians 2.20. I'll read it to you. Paul says this, The Son of God loved me. The Son of God gave himself for me. And therefore, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. Christ lives in me. Paul's favorite description for a Christian is somebody who is in Christ. He says it over and over and over again. And it is a glorious, wonderful truth. If only we could begin to plumb the depths of it. Paul would say we're crucified with Christ. Actually, it happened to us because we're united to him in some extraordinary way. We are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, righteous in Christ. It's the teaching that we're not only servants of Christ, though what a joy to serve the king, the master. We're not only friends with Christ, though what a joy to talk and converse and walk along the Emmaus road with somebody as extraordinary as Jesus. We're not only brothers and sisters with Jesus in the family of God, co-heirs with Jesus in the family of God, we're actually united to Jesus. He is in us and we are in him. And it's a reason to stand so secure this morning, even if you're like me, you don't fully grasp and understand it and you can find your words not fully articulating it. John finishes his letter by reminding us that the final flagstone in this strong, solid surface that cannot shake and move, and you will not shake and move when you stand on it, is what it is to be united to Jesus. We don't simply observe him as king, or as friend, or as master, actually join to him, which I think makes sense of a promised protection. Of course he's gonna not let us go if we're actually united to him, and he's in us and we're in him. It's not like you're over here somewhere and he's over here and and hopefully his arms are long enough to kind of keep hold of you. To be in Christ, to have had that moment or series of moments where you've confessed your faith and become united to him is done. And the fruit will follow. Up and down and highs and lows and good, bad and the ugly. The bits of fruit will follow. Because of this union with Christ. So, I just wonder in these moments, let me just pray before we share communion together. I'm just gonna pray this. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are the one who testifies to us about Jesus. You did it at his baptism when you affirmed him. You did it at his resurrection when you raised him. You did it for each one of us who believe by helping us and enabling us to believe in the truth of Jesus. I just pray, Holy Spirit, in these moments, would you just lead us into the, the particular stone of truth that we need to stand upon afresh this morning. Help us to see any lies that we've been believing that have stopped us standing secure. Help us to confess those and help us to stand upon the truth of who God is, Holy Spirit. Would you just minister to us in these moments? we just create space for you to do what only you can do? Testify, witness, lead, assure, comfort, convict, counsel. We want to wait on you in these moments so that we can stand and run secure, confident.